Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 8. We find ourselves in the middle of this account of the great flood in Noah's day. This flood account spans four chapters, so we know it's very important. The details are important. Um, what is being described has great impact on the rest of the biblical story. We know also, because the New Testament attests to this, our Lord and the apostles say that this is a prefigurement of final judgment, that the final judgment that will come on the last day will have some resemblance to what we see here, not with water, but with fire, as it says in Second Peter. And so there's, uh, it's with great attention that we come to the details of the passage. It's just too long to take in one sermon, so we're breaking it up into a few. Uh, we come now to chapter 8, verse 1, and, Mo- and here we have Noah, who has been on the ark now for five months now, five months. This is a, a big cargo container-like looking ship. Um, with all due respect to the ark encounter in Cincinnati, that boat looks a lot nicer than the boat that I'm sure Noah actually was floating in for five months. Now, with all those animals and his family. Now, I don't know how many family trips you've taken, um, but I've taken quite a few with multiple minivans over the years. I always feel bad when we trade in the minivan because it it looks like the ark looked after everyone got off the ark. That's what those minivans were like. I remember one such trip, and this is only a a 10-hour trip. So imagine a five-months-to-this-point trip. And I remember our youngest son ate way too much Arby's at the stop before and released all of that Arby's into the back of the van at the end, about two hours in. It wasn't right away, two hours in. We all emptied out of the van at a rest stop and stood there thinking, we're not going back in that van for some time. That's four hours on a trip to Colorado. What is it like in the ark five months later? That's where Noah and his sons and his daughters-in-law and his wife With all these animals, that's where they are now when we come to this passage. And this is the Word of God starting in Genesis 8. I will read the first 19 verses of the chapter. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundredth and first year, the first month, the first day of the month, 
the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all, of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we once again come to your word and we thank you for the book of Genesis. Please open it to us once again by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. When we read the Bible, we are moved to a high and reverent esteem for this, your word. Certainly the heavenliness of the content, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts. Now, Lord, for this hour, please give us keen insight. Help us to see what you have to reveal to us that it may impact our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, try to imagine a bit floating in that massive cargo container with all those animals for five or six months, then seven, and so on. A year total. But in that mid-range of months, the sixth or seventh month, we have no indication that Noah has been receiving regular words from God. We know that God told Noah and his family to enter the ark, and Noah led his family into the ark. God shut up the door, but we're not given indication that there was a regular revelation happening, just that Noah was waiting upon God for the next instructions, month after month after month. And there he is, wondering, maybe has God abandoned us? Yes, God saved us. It's amazing, considering what they all witnessed, what they were delivered from. But now, what's their fate going to be like as month after month goes by. There's a brilliant Scottish commentator from the ninth century who wrote what most people consider the classic commentary on Genesis. His name was Robert Candlish. Candlish was surmising a bit about Noah's train of thought in these months of waiting and wondering. Listen to what Cand Candlish says. Far down in the unfathomable depths below lies a dead and buried world. Noah, shut in his narrow prison, seems to be abandoned to his fate. He cannot do anything to help himself. And in this universal visitation of sin, the great flood, this terrible reckoning with sinners, why should he obtain mercy? What is he that when everyone and everything else was taken in judgment, he and his family should be left? May he not be righteously suffered to perish after all? Is he not a sinner like the rest? Does he not feel himself to be the chief of sinners? You know, at first, Noah probably felt that relief when he realized that what he had been saved from. But month after month later, still floating, maybe he felt abandoned or for, for, forgotten. And then these words in the first verse of our text ring out like so many other abruptive words where something seems to be going very bad, but God intervenes. It says, but God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over to start drying up the land. The ark had been their hiding place until God's righteous indignation had passed. And you know, the Bible is full of these stories of God's righteous judgment and him delivering people. Now, when you look at these stories of judgment, your reaction could be one of two things. Many people look at it and say, that's a judgmental God that I cannot believe in. 
There's no way that a real God would be this way. I'm not interested in that God if that's the way that God is. And they speak like that when they read a story like this or one of the other stories of God's judgment. But there's another response. The other response is acknowledging, I deserve that judgment. I should have received that wrath. I deserve to perish with everyone else. But for some reason, God delivered me. By God's grace, his undeserved favor shown to us. And in this case, think about the family members. They weren't spoken to by God that we're told. told. They were rightly related to Noah. Because they were related to Noah, they were delivered from this deluge that came. There are different ways we can look at the activity of God, the judging activity of God. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in a bit of a surmising. When the ultimate judgment of God falls upon God the Son... For the sins of his people, Jesus undergoes God's condemnation on the cross. And then some are saved from this. Different way of looking at that activity of the cross. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For the word of the cross, that's the word of the judgment of God for sin on Jesus, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's silly that God would visit on one man sins of other people and kill him in such a violent, barbaric way. That's foolishness you would believe that. But Paul says, But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. We look at it and say, our sins are paid for in Christ, and so we can be right with God. We look at the cross completely differently. This is the way it is when God's judgment is unleashed. It's always righteous. It's always right. We can look at God negatively and say, he shouldn't shouldn't dare to do this. He has a right to do this. I don't believe in that kind of God. Or better yet, the response would be, what should we do to be delivered? Come into the ark. Come into the ark. God's covenant promises, his promises of deliverance, his promises of salvation for those who rest in him, who find their deliverance in him, wherever you see this happen, you also see people drawn to him all the more. When we recognize what God does in Scripture, we're drawn to him for his great grace. That's the right response. There are many biblical themes that are, are introduced in the story of Noah and the flood. We addressed some last week. Now let's see what's there for us this week. Other introductions that are very important. Uh, The first one you'll see right off the bat is this concept of God remembering. God remembered Noah. This opening verse harkens back to what was said earlier in chapter 6. Do you remember when God described how bad things were on the earth and that he had willed to destroy the earth? But he had made a promise to preserve a seed, the seed, to ultimately bring salvation, the Messiah. And so, before he commits to wiping out everyone and everything, it says in Genesis 6, verse 7, For I am sorry that I have made them, verse 8, for Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There, God remembers his commitment to preserve the seed, and Noah receives grace. Now we come to chapter 8, verse 1. Here's Noah in the ark, floating on the earth. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembering Noah. This concept or this theme of God remembering is very important for the rest of the biblical story. It's important for everyone here. It's important for all of us. This has to do with God's remembering his promises and always being faithful to keep his word. This is one prime example that we can bank on. We can see that his future promises are sure because of what he does and what he accomplishes here. Against really... Um, all human conception, he keeps his promise to preserve the seed. In an individual, Noah, and those associated with him, his family, they receive deliverance. 
It's a picture that should encourage us concerning all the promises of God that are made to us. Now, this exact wording, God remembered, it's not unusual in Scripture. It's regularly repeated to the point where we know this is a theme that God wants us to see, to lay hold of. Some, some chapters later, when we're introduced to Abraham, we read of Abraham in an episode in his life where he was trying to ask God to stop his nephew Lot from being destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah that God had decided he was going to visit judgment upon. And so he kept appealing to God, and God said, if there's you know, even one righteous. And so God decided he was going to bring fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah, but he promised Abraham some deliverance. So Abraham, it says in Genesis 19, went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. That's where he was begging God for mercy for Lot. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham, the promise he made to Abraham, and he delivered Lot. Later, we have the story, the tragic story of Leah and Rachel, who are treated terribly by their husband, Jacob. A divided love, broken relationship, terrible pain. Clear example, among others, as to why this model for marriage, polygamy, is so wrong and so sinful in Scripture. Yet Rachel was barren, but God had promised her that she would be the one who would bear the seed, the Messiah, eventually. Genesis 3, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel at her lowest moment of depression and despair when she thought all else was lost. God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. God remembered Rachel. He remembered what? He remembered his promise. And Rachel was a beneficiary. She received this grace because of God's oath, his covenant. Later, when Israel finds itself under a Pharaoh who no no longer favors them. You remember how the Pharaoh in Joseph's time favored the Israelites, Joseph's family. But over the years, that was less and less the case to the point of being enslaved and oppressed. We read in Exodus chapter 2, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Had God forgotten his covenant promise to Israel through Abraham? Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God remembered. So this language repeats itself throughout the book of Genesis. Moses, the author, is using it by God's Spirit's direction to bring home something that will lace itself throughout the rest of the scriptures. Far later in Israel's history, many hundreds of years later, Israel did many things to provoke God's discipline. Yet God continually promised to uphold Israel so that the seed would come forth to be the Messiah. Ultimately, for the preservation of the Messiah, God keeps his promise to Israel. Jeremiah, the so-called weeping prophet who watches uh, the nation being hauled off into exile, towards the end of his book, he forecasts God's keeping his promise. Using Ephraim as the name for the people of God, for Israel, Jeremiah writes, Is Ephraim my dear son? He's a mouthpiece for God, the prophet. Is he my darling child? Speaking of Israel. For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still, says God. Therefore my heart yearns for him. 
I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Despite their disobedience and rebellion, God is upholding his promise to preserve them. God remembers them. David, on behalf of all believers, prays a prayer in Psalm 136. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love, it's a word for grace. It's his undeserved favor that he shows to us because of his covenant commitment. Ultimately, his covenant commitment to his son who's yet to come. But we are the beneficiaries. Just as God showed favor to Noah, his family received grace. Just as God favors his son, we are related to his son. When we are related to his son, we receive grace. God remembers his commitments. But God remembered Noah in all the beasts and all the livestock. Derek Kidner, that eminent Old Testament scholar, wrote, when the Old Testament says that God remembered, it combines the ideas of faithful love and timely intervention. Bruce Waltke says, God shows himself to be a trustworthy covenant partner. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. You can count on the promises of God and his word to be realized for you. Not as though we'll feel that every day, but we can know it to be ultimately true. Think of how long Noah waited between God speaking. He promised certain things. Noah stayed faithful and obeyed as best he could with God's grace, and then God would speak again and assure him. God kept his promises. We can rely on God's many promises to us personally and corporately, his saving and his preserving grace in the midst of judgment even. Sure to you who are believers. When God says, whoever believes in Christ will not perish but have everlasting life, you can believe in him. He remembers his promise. When God says, trust in me with all your heart. When God says, lean on me with not your own understanding but all the ways you can possibly think of, think of me. As you think of me, God says to the believer, I will make your path straight. You can, promise, you can believe this promise of God because he remembers. When God promises to never leave you or forsake you, he won't. He remembers. When Jesus said, don't worry about your life as such, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll wear, your house, your car, all the stuff that you're uh, consumed with thinking of, seek first the kingdom of God and all this stuff to the degree you'll need it will be given to you. We can be sure of this. He promises this because he remembers. When God says that he'll give strength to the weary, who is not weary? Who does not find themselves to be wearied? When you grow tired, he'll renew your strength. He'll have you soar on wings like eagle, like an eagle. You'll run and not grow weary. You'll walk and not be faint. He promises. He remembers. When God says his plans for you are not to harm you, but to give you hope in a future. When God says, don't be anxious, but in every situation, whatever the situation is, pray to him. Thank him. Present your request to him. He'll give you a peace that passes human understanding. It'll guard your heart. He'll guard your mind. God will not forget this promise to you. When God says he is your shepherd, who gives you rest, who gives you peace, who refreshes your soul, He's such a shepherd, and eventually you will dwell in his house forever. When he says it, he remembers his promises. And one of the many ways we can be sure of it is just this account with Noah, what he told Noah to do and how he kept his promises. And it just keeps going on like this throughout the scriptures right on into today for each of us. God's remembrance of his covenant promises, it's one clear theme on display in this account. I want you to notice something else. God not only remembers, but he also restores, he recreates, he renews. This is what he does. He does it to the earth, 
And he does it to people too. He does it to relationships. He does it to all sorts of situations. He takes from the ruin and makes something beautiful out of it. Recreates, renews, refreshes, restores. He does this. This is what the Lord does. It's on full display here. In the second part of first, the first verse, he begins this restorative process of the earth. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now there's a play on this because the same word for wind is the word for spirit that's used in the first chapter when the spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep and he began the creative act of forming the earth and filling it. Here, the same word is used. God blew a wind over the earth and the water subsided. He's starting to recreate now, to restore, to renew, to reset things. This is a continual theme, this renewal theme. The fountains of the deep, verse 2. And the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens were res- was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. So the process is starting. The waters receding back into the deep places that were formed in the earth, under the waters as this hydrological violence was wreaked upon the earth. And now he's calling the waters back. Some probably evaporate up and some go down. But now the earth is starting to take its, its new form. The waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. So now we're talking about all this, these many months, these many, many months later. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So the floating finally ended at least. They would still be in the ark for some time, but at least there was less tossing and movement, less seasickness, no doubt. The ups and downs of the ark had finally stopped and the ship was now grounded. Moses identifies the resting place where we think it's somewhere in modern Turkey, but it's a massive area, so we don't know for sure. And many people still think that they're going to find the ark. My take on that, for what it's worth, is that if this huge wood structure with all these materials on it was sitting there for however long, it would not take long for people to use all that lumber and such for their own dwellings, for new places to live, and so forth. There just wasn't a lot left it's by way of mature lumber and such. So it makes total sense it would not be there any longer. But still too much water to leave the ark by this moment when the ark rests. And the waters continue to abate, verse 5, until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. No doubt the crust of the earth was, was moved and, and it buckled under the power of the flood, this hydrological pressure that happened this catastrophe, the powers of water. Really, very few things could do damage like water. Fire would be the other thing, but water. There's a few of our members in the last couple months have suffered terrible floods in their houses based on small pipes that burst. I have a friend who went away on a vacation in the laundry room. The hose that goes into his washer split and it just started spewing water. It didn't spew it out full throttle hose, but just split the split the hose and started leaking out. But they were gone for just enough time to where that water filled up the whole first floor and the floor caved in underneath the washer and the dryer. That's just a hose. That's not the earth bursting forth with water from top and from bottom when he brings together the water and just completely remakes the earth underneath it. And the mountains peak out now and Noah can see that things are starting to abate, starting to dial back now. Verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. The window. I didn't say all the windows. The window. There may have been places to see through. I'm sure there was. But as far as a, a design engineered place, there'd be a window to open. He finally opens this window. 
Then he sends forth a raven. His strategy is, I'll send out this raven, a strong bird that can fly long distances, to start testing to see if there is any dry land. It went to and fro, probably came back to the ship, left, back, so forth. Finally, though, it didn't come back. This is to say that in some great distance, there was a place where that raven could then land. So now he knows it's getting better. Now, I want you to picture for a moment the ark, just for a moment. I don't know exactly what it looked like, it, more like those shipping containers that you see on the backs of trucks, trains, on ships. Probably more like a big floating rectangle. It's funny because back when we had our first son, I remember Sherry telling us we were going to decorate the nursery. Now, the timing of this is interesting because I was, still, I was just finished seminary. You were never smarter, wiser, or more brilliant than your first year after seminary. And so I had just been studying. In fact, Genesis was our main project for Hebrew exegesis. I could not be more... Ex- Robert Candlish didn't know as much about Genesis as I knew after studying in the Hebrew. I mean, I got to see in Hebrew, but nevertheless, I was a genius as it relates to everything related to Genesis in the Bible. And so, which he mentioned this, I didn't say it out loud because well, this would be jerky to do this, but oh man, Noah, I know what the pictures of Noah's ark look like and on precious moments. This is not the ark. And sure enough, I had to be quiet, worried that my son would grow up warped in his view of the Bible by seeing these pictures of a, bo- a perfect boat with a little cabin on it. And there are a couple little, a little donkeys sticking their head out, and there's Noah with his crook walking up and down the deck like the promedant, like he could just lay out, catch some sun, get a drink, cast a line over. That's Noah's Ark in, t- in modern... Even try to Google what it looks like. The most ridiculous pictures you've ever seen. This is not the Ark of Noah's day. We're talking a big, nasty, gnarly, tar-soaked rectangle that floated and it stunk of animals for a year. People hemmed into this thing. All the things you can imagine and the worst picture you can imagine it, that's what the Ark looked like and it finally rests. And what's amazing about this Noah starts to send out birds to figure out how close the earth was to being inhabitable. In the patience he shows is the part I, it really resonates with me. As soon as you can get off of this thing, you're going to want to get off of this thing. Verse 8, he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot. The dove can't fly as far. So it's a little better reconnaissance. If the dove doesn't come back, it couldn't have gone too far. So now we're really close. But the dove comes back, no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her, in, took her and brought her into the ark with him. Verse 10, he waited another seven days. I'd be like sending this thing out every day. Come on, we got to get moving on this thing. But seven days he waits. And the seven days it may have significance. There might be more significance than I can recognize. But he waits seven days. And again, he set forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. This is powerful. God's judgment was over. It was over. Now, things are really looking good. Things are looking like it's time. What a relief it must have been. Plant life is starting to recover. A a dove, unlike a raven, needs seeds and branches and stuff to eat and, and to sit on. You know, a raven could fly out and eat carrion. But now this dove is showing with this olive branch that she brings back that, th- that peace had come. In fact, that's why we use the phrase, I extend an olive branch. This means judgment is over, and now this resembles, this, this is a ceasing of hostility. I extend you a, 
an olive branch means I want to, we have hostility, we want to do away, I want to end that hostility. And so Noah sees the olive branch come back from the dove. Now, I don't know about you, but now we're ready to get off this boat, right? Verse 12. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. Now, if your children are saying, oh, I got to stop, I got to stop, I got to go to the bathroom. What do you think it was like for Noah? We saw the olive branch, Dad. Can we get off of this boat now? That's what they're no, no, no doubt asking. She did not return any more. We have to appreciate Noah's patience. And Calvin, who I view as a very patient individual from my study of him as a person, he is even amazed by the patience of Noah. Calvin wrote, How great must have been the fortitude of the man Noah, who after the incredible weariness of a whole year, when the deluge had ceased and new life had shone forth, does not yet move a foot outside his sepulcher, he calls it a coffin, instead of a foot outside his floating coffin without the command of God, waiting for God's command. What do you want me to do from here, God? You've rescued us. What happens next? Then verse 13. In the 600th and first year, the first month, first day of the month, the waters were dried off from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. They were on the ark approximately one year and maybe ten days. We don't know exactly because Moses works from an Egyptian calendar, no doubt, which throws off the exact dating a little bit. Verse 15. When God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all, of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. I hope you recognize the significance of the exact language that God used. It's the word of recreation or renewal or restoration. This is what he's speaking. He's using words that are similar to what he used in the beginning. In Genesis 1.28, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Similar language now here, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh. No more creation ex nihilo, it's been crea- he's, been, he's created. But now there's a repopulating, a restoring, a renewal that's happening. In the same kinds of language, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. The creation mandate is restated to Noah. It, it hasn't changed. It's still God's will to go out and spread, be fruitful, and multiply. So, verse 18, Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. The promised seed is preserved after all that trial, after all that judgment, after all that hardship. And the animals and the humans go out from the ark where the flood was an act of decreation. Now we have recreation, a restoration, renewal. You know, a few observations that we'll say quickly. You notice that there's a reset now. After the time of wickedness, before the flood, where they were giving into marriage and polygamous marriage and all that was evil, now there's a restoration of the marital union. Man and a woman, that's marriage. And they come off the ark as a reset. I know it doesn't last long before there's aberration to it, but you see how this is upheld, the model for the family. And it's reset under the time of Noah. Lives would be shorter going forward, not immediately, although they were shorter immediately compared to just before the flood. 
And then after time, even shorter than that. Several things could be derived from this. It's just the multiplication of evil wouldn't be as possible as people live shorter lives. Then also we have the reality, uh, the reality that Satan was no doubt warned by what God had done here. If Satan thinks he can intervene in the line of the seed, God says you can't. And this is the kind of extreme I'll go to make sure the seed comes forth. So Satan now has to take his focus off the particular seed and he looks to the people of the seed to attack eventually Christ himself when he meets him in the wilderness. Now there's one last important theme I want you to see briefly. This is the last point that I make. And you'll probably, you've noticed by now the emphasis on Noah and his family. I've alluded to this a little bit. This is a, what's a called a covenantal theme that really pervades the way God deals with people. Uh, he commonly deals with people through the family unit. You see this in the case of Noah for sure. It's noteworthy that this is God's usual approach. Now, we admit that the family itself has been assailed because of sin's entrance, but this doesn't stop God as his primary way to work through parents and to their children to perpetuate faith in him. That's the most common way. He does it other ways. He draws people who have no parents or relatives or knowledge of the truth and brings them the truth by messengers of the gospel. But the norm, and I'd say it's probably the norm for most of us, we probably heard the gospel message in the context of our family first. Didn't mean we believed it necessarily, but we heard it there first, in most cases. Now, I realize in American congregations, that might be less and less the case that there's a perpetuating faith. But it's still the common way the Lord works in the scriptural testimony, and we still even see it work itself out in most of our practical lives. If you look at verse 15, you'll get a sense of this familial focus that God has to exact his covenant of grace, to show his plan of salvation. He works first, it seems, primarily through these family units. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Now, I emphasize this here because you remember when I read the really long section of scripture last week, multiple times he kept recounting who exactly was in the ark with Noah. Moses wanted us to know that God had shown grace to Noah, and Noah showed obedience in response to that grace. And as a result of the relationship God had with Noah, Noah's family benefited from that in some fashion. Now, not in his eternal salvation is related yet, but definitely, temporally, they were delivered. They enjoyed some benefits because they were related to Noah. Now, not all of them go on to walk with God. One of them is the perpetuator of the seed. And that's true in all these families, that God places a gracious hand upon one of the members of the family. Everyone gets some benefit from that, but it doesn't guarantee that they're all going to go walk with the Lord. There's more that has to occur there, and the Lord works that as well. But make no mistake, the family unit's important to God. This is how God most commonly works. Think about the life of Abraham just for a moment. He tells Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He says later, in more clarity, in Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations to be a God to you and your children. That's what he promises Abraham. Now, the children are brought into a discussion about this. This is Abraham's told he needs to do this. It's not because Abraham does something faithful. It's just God chooses to lay his gracious hand of salvation upon Abraham, and he's supposed to keep his children and his family in the hearing of the Lord's will and in fellowship with the Lord. And the Lord says, I want you to be circumcised, which seems odd to us, but in those days that was a marking, that was a marking sign. And you're supposed to apply this also to your male children. 
Uh, now, it's not up to the children. This is a decision that the parents made because of the command of God. It was to remind the whole of the family that God had placed special grace upon them. And it's true, every member of the family had to lay hold of God's Savior, Old Testament looking forward to the seed who would come, us looking back. But the family is a key way God exacts his covenant promises. He renews this over and over. He does it with Isaac. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father, he says to Isaac. Isaac, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give, you your, off, give your offspring all these lands. So he's talking immediately, but he's also talking spiritually and distantly as well. But he works through this family unit. He does the same thing with Jacob. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall come from you. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. I will give it to your children after you. Much, much later, when Isaiah is, again, sort of like Jeremiah, lamenting a bit about the state of Israel, God speaks through Isaiah to say, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. This makes sense in the New Testament when you have Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, this new era. Jesus has ascended. The Spirit of God is going to come to open up the way, not just to the Israelites, but to the Gentiles. But he doesn't change this family focus when he speaks to that first crowd, who are namely people who were Jewish people, the first crowd, who would have understood this covenantal language, would understand how important it is to be identified with their covenant-keeping God. And Peter says to them in Acts 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This starting with the family and then working outwardly is the normal way God works in Scripture. And as a bit of a side note, but an explanatory note, one of the reasons we practice baptism the way we do is that we view this to be an extension from the Old Testament picture of circumcision. It's not about the individual faith of the person. It's about God's command to apply this to our children. Now, someone has to believe. The parents would believe at first level. And then they should have the mark of the covenant applied to their children after. It's not a guarantee of their individual salvation. It's a recalling of the promise of God that he might remember his commitment. And then over the course of time, through discipleship, through the regular introduction of Christ to our children, we hope they lay hold of Jesus personally. Whereas our Baptist brethren, their view is that baptism is something you wait for a person to make a professional faith in Christ. And when they make their profession and we judge that profession to be right, then we apply baptism. We disagree, obviously. Not in a way that breaks our fellowship, but we come at it from the perspective as God tells us covenantally to apply this sign to our children. We call it covenant baptism. We don't think it's wait until you can discern what you think they might be thinking and then have them apply because that's what you're really doing. It's when other people think that your profession is right. And it has more to do with, this is my expression, so baptize, whereas we're saying, God says, do this. And this is part of the process he normally works so that people will come to faith in Christ. So I say to young people especially, your baptism is something you're supposed to look upon with the message it gives. The promise is to your parents and to you. What's the promise? That if you believe what this symbolizes, that Jesus is the only one who can wash away your sins, then you will be saved. That's the promise to you and your children. Believe in Christ and be saved. 
And so we view it from this covenantal lens that comes from a familial focus that I think is pretty demonstrable here with Noah and works itself out continuing in the chapters to come. So to recap what we've seen so far in this flood account, these themes we have learned, we see God's great grace on display in the midst of judgment, saving a people for himself, even though he's right to bring judgment to all. We also see, like Noah, that when grace is shown to us, we should have the response of obedience and faithfulness in return to what God, in return or reaction to what God has done. This is what compels Noah to build the ark and do what God says. We also see that God's judgment, when it's on display and properly interpreted, brings us to a deep sense of awe for him. The reverence that is that is multiplied when we see the power of God, the holy justice of God, the right response is to bow down, and it leads us to another theme, that's utter dependence on him, utter dependence. There's nothing we could do to thwart that kind of power. He is all-powerful. We have to throw ourselves upon him. We're encouraged. We're encouraged that God never goes back on his promises. He says, this is how you are you can be delivered. Noah, build this. I'm going to send a judgment. Build this this way. Get on this and you'll be saved. People, you're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. You deserve wrath, but I give you Jesus. Rest in him. Trust in him. The ark of salvation is Christ. And he will save you if you go to Christ. He will not forsake you if you're in Christ. You can be sure of this because he keeps his promises. And God is always doing the work of renewing and restoring. If he can reshape the earth and restore it and refresh it and do what he's done with it, he can most certainly make you a new creation. And he does. Finally, we see the importance of family. We see family as a key way that God perpetuates his gracious, gracious plan of salvation. When you see God on display working his covenant promises out, it draws us to him. It attracts us to him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, your holy word is perfect and we acknowledge that we need your Holy Spirit to help us understand and apply what we have read and studied. Oh Lord, you have remembered us because of Christ. Now, oh Lord, please give us more help by your Spirit so that we would always remember you. We echo the words of the prophet Jonah who was recounting his most desperate moment when he prayed. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, O Lord, and my prayer rose to you and and to your holy temple. I pray this in the name of Christ, who is the ark of our salvation. Amen.